family of one of my childhood friends prayed in unison before each evening meal. God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for this food. Amen. At which place all eight dove in to the meal that was before them. In another canned prayer of thanksgiving that we commonly hear, the host or hostess says, with everyone's head bowed, for this food we are about to receive, may we be truly grateful. To which everyone is to respond in unison, Amen. And the meal begins. You know, the families that I have observed pray these prayers on numerous occasions all bow their heads. They generally close their eyes and fold their hands. There's a reverenced hush that prevails at the meal. And if you ask these families, do you pray before meals? They would insist that they do. But in point of fact, if you caught it, neither one of these formulaic prayers really is a prayer at all. They never actually get around to addressing God. Think about it. I ate Thanksgiving dinner this year at my parents' home. My mom cooked a wonderful meal. One of those meals you don't forget about that day or the next. Now imagine I'm sitting at that meal with my family and I studiously avoid looking at my mother's face and I say to everyone seated around the table, Mom is a great cook, Mom is a good cook, and we thank her for this meal. They'd all look at me like I'd lost my marbles or something. It's kind of a strange way to say something at a dinner table like that. And maybe somebody would try to step in and actually look Mom in the face and thank her for the dinner that she had made. But think about it, God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for this food is a message spoken to others that never actually gives any thanks to God at all. Similarly, for what we are about to eat, may we be truly thankful, is a call to prayer. It is not a prayer. It does not address God. Some of you grew up in such homes, and you prayed such prayers for a long time, or spoke to the others at the meal in that way on a daily basis. And these kinds of things we understand take place all the time in our culture. Around the Thanksgiving season, you've noticed some media source will ask some important person to express their thanks. And if you listen carefully, you will notice that the vast majority of respondents never actually thank anyone. They simply offer a short list of happy circumstances. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for food. I'm thankful for health. I'm thankful for my job. I'm thankful for my dog. And that's how it goes. They talk about the gifts of God with never actually giving thanks to Him. Again, imagine that taking place between people. It's ludicrous. But think of this college student. We'll take a college young man, and his parents bring him to college and inform him just as they arrive at the campus that they have paid the first year's tuition in full. 
And not only that, but the new car in which they are driving, they lie to him. It's really not a rental car. It's the car they just bought for him. He has a brand new car. And they pull up to a brand new house right off of campus and inform him that this is his house that they have built for him with their money and they're paying for it. All expenses paid. It's all been done. Now, that'd be really stupid parents, I realize. It's just an illustration. But somebody walks up as they come out of that car and he's just learned this information. And they say to him, it's Thanksgiving season here, or going to be, and we'd want to ask if there's anything you're thankful for. And he says, I'm really thankful that I have a car, and I'm really thankful that I have a house, and I'm really thankful that I've got full tuition paid. And that's all he says. I mean, the kid should be locked away standing there right next to his parents who have just given all of this to him, and he never says thank you to them. He never says, I'm thankful to my parents who have provided these things. It would be utterly ridiculous that this is how people express thanksgiving all the time. It is all about the gifts, and it has nothing to do with the giver of those gifts. Now this is really no mystery to us who are God's people, is it? We understand that when you are alienated from God, when you are blind to His truth, when you are spiritually dead in transgressions and sins, you can't even see God. How can you give Him thanks? You look at all of His gifts, but you do not see Him. If you have not been spiritually reborn, if you've not come to know God through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, you may pray about thanking God. You may talk about his common gifts, but you will not thank him. For people who are not on talking terms with God and who have no sense that he has actually intervened in their lives, thanksgiving is dead. But when you come to personally know God, the God from whom every good gift and every perfect gift descends, when you are enlightened to realize that He supplies every blessing, when you come to love Him, then thanksgiving comes alive in your heart. And it comes alive at all times, in all situations, even at something as mundane as a family dinner. A simple meal brings thanksgiving to the heart of the truly redeemed. And it is all the more alive thanksgiving when the meal commemorates God's saving grace. As we look to Jesus who initiated this meal of communion, the theme of thanksgiving is clearly witnessed. In fact, many Christian traditions refer to the Lord's Supper or communion. We use those two phrases. They refer to it as Eucharist from the Greek word which means thanks or thanksgiving. And as we look to Jesus, there's good reason for calling this meal Eucharist. We shy away from that term because often it is used in places that attach wrong meaning to this meal. And we don't need to use that phrase. In fact, it is probably more biblical to refer to it as the Lord's Supper and Communion. But there's a reason why it's called Eucharist. There's a reason why it's referred to as a meal of thanksgiving. 
We look first of all to Jesus himself for this as we see him praying over that last supper, which is the seedbed and the, the, the uh, environment in which this meal was given to us. The gospel authors, as we have noted in our journey through Luke, one gospel writer often records something that another does not, and that leads to all kinds of interesting comparisons between the two. But this is especially true when the event is less than vital to the particular author's account. All four gospel writers record Jesus' baptism. They all four refer to his transfiguration, to his crucifixion and burial and resurrection and post-resurrection ministry. Depending on what you do with the end of Mark, only Luke refers to his ascension, and only two of the four gospel writers refer to Jesus' birth. So in light of this, it's intriguing to note that the synoptic writers, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John writes a good deal later and has a different agenda than the, these three, but the synoptic writers all record the detail that Jesus gave thanks at the Last Supper. I think there's significance to that. It's significance that's backed up not in this simple point, but as the New Testament deals with this very thing. More on that later. But Jesus was following tradition when he prayed over the elements at the Last Supper. The Jews did that at this meal. But the fact that the synoptic writers mention this prayer, I think, is significant. All of them take the time to say this. Matthew 26 and verse 26. Let's just remind ourselves of this simple point. I'd like to string along a thought here as we consider Jesus giving thanks at this Passover meal. And we consider it in light, first of all, of the Gospel writers, just to remind ourselves of this obvious truth. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. If you will turn with me to these passages as you're able. Matthew 26 and verse 26. Matthew says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. This is not the first time in the Gospels that Jesus gives thanks at a meal. As he created the food for the multitudes, he broke it and gave thanks. That is mentioned there as well. It seems to be a pattern of his life that those who knew him never forgot. That as he broke bread, as he gave thanks, there was something in that that typified Jesus' ministry and reminded his followers of him after his death. But we find here, so it's not the first reference to him giving thanks, but it is mentioned here at this last Passover with his disciples. Mark chapter 14 and verse 22. Mark chapter 14 And verse 22, Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, again at the Lord's Supper, this last meal, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. He gave thanks. Luke chapter 22 and verse 17. Luke also believes it important to record this truth. Again, remembering that the Gospel writers skip many details in the recounting of Christ's life. But this one, Luke also presents to us. Luke chapter 22 and verse 17. 
Here we have further detail. As Luke says in 22.17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So with the cup and with the bread, Jesus gives thanks for each, and it is recorded by the gospel writers. Now, John writes for a different purpose and does not even record this meal. He doesn't reference uh, at least the bread and the cup, and so he does not mention that Jesus gave thanks. The point being, again, very simply, that with all three synoptics, this is a point of significance. Now, this significance is not, I don't think, coincidental. Don't think that it just happened. But in fact, we find as the New Testament develops that this idea of giving thanks is significant to the biblical authors, particularly to the Apostle Paul. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a passage that we read often in the context of the Lord's Supper and often, I I think, probably do not mention anything about this, but it's there each time that we read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Now notice it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is an obvious reference to the Passover meal Jesus ate with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Like the synoptic authors, Paul also includes this detail that Jesus gave thanks for the bread. Now verse 25 reads, In the same way after supper he took the cup, which seems to assume that Jesus also offered a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup, which of course Luke has just said he did. So on the night of Passover, the Jews gathered to rejoice in God's deliverance as he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And on this sacred night, Jesus dramatically heightens the symbolism of the Passover meal. He gives thanks for the bread and the wine, which symbolize now not merely Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but will hereafter stand for the believer's communion with the sacrificed body of Jesus, which he will soon lay down for their redemption. Jesus gives thanks for this bread. It takes on new symbolism. And as he holds that bread and that cup, Jesus, holds, Jesus knows that his life will be sacrificed to free God's people from the bondage of their sins. Think of it in, in light of its context. The deliverance from Egypt. Now Jesus says, this blood, this is the new covenant in my blood as he passes the cup. He holds aloft that bread and that wine and he gives thanks for this new day. For this new work of saving grace that he is fulfilling. And I use that word very specifically. He's fulfilling it. It's not a new plan of salvation that has nothing to do with the old plan of the old covenant in the Old Testament. As Israel was delivered from Egypt and celebrated in this Passover meal God's deliverance, 
So Jesus Christ had come to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. And Jesus holds up these elements that demonstrate this freedom from sin, and he gives thanks to the God of salvation. Earlier in this epistle to the Corinthians, Paul emphasized even more pointedly the significance of the prayer of thanks connected with the Lord's Supper. I invite you to chapter 10. Turn back one chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Before we look at this chapter, let me trace out the context. We have not been dealing with 1 Corinthians for some time. Just let me remind you where the Corinthians are at because it really brings to light the point that Paul is drawing out here concerning the Lord's Supper. Remember, the Corinthian believers were saved out of a vile pagan culture. Corinth was a cesspool of sensual idolatry. And we gather in the midst of a community, in the midst of a culture in, which is, is somewhat the, similar. As we gather around this table, we gather certainly in a culture that is very sensually oriented. But for the Corinthians, that looked a little differently than it does for us. The worship of idols was woven into the very fabric of the culture, and that worship was very sensual in its nature. Illicit sex reigned in Corinth, and it was sanctioned, it was, it was um, approved by its use in the temples. There would be ritual meals that would be celebrated, and these sensual, godless gods that were worshipped were everywhere. Now you can imagine where that puts these new believers. These believers whom Jesus has rescued from this moral pigsty are under constant temptation to return to the sensual pleasures of Corinth's gods, and they are constantly tempted to participate in this idolatrous worship. It was a, a real, live problem for them, as it is for Christians in our day, in our setting. In chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians that God is a jealous God whose anger is aroused by idolatry. That takes a little work for us, and we'll perhaps do more work on that in the future as God gives us opportunity. But let's remember again, when we hear that God is a jealous God, that's a good thing. Some of you young people get in trouble once in a while, I'm sure, from mom and dad, and they correct you, explaining that what you have done shows jealousy and that that is wrong. Jealousy is generally an evil thing because in jealousy we see someone else, what they have or what they are doing or how they are received, and we want what's happening to them. We don't like it that they're being promoted or something of the like. Jealousy is an evil thing, but when it comes to God, we need to understand his jealousy in a certain manner. God is a jealous God because he knows that false gods are nothing more than the enfranchisement of human depravity. What I mean by that is this. They are nothing but images that glorify the wickedness that resides in the heart of the people who invent them. There's a reason why many of the gods at Corinth were sensual, wicked, immoral gods. The reason is because that was what was in the heart of the people who invented them in the generations that went before so God is jealous when he knows that people are, are elevating depravity. God is jealous because there is only one God. Therefore, every false God is an illusion. 
God is jealous when his people worship nothing instead of him. As a father might be jealous of a young man, his son, who has in his room a picture of an athlete and worships that picture, or the picture of some woman and worships that woman's body and has no relationship to his father. That's a right kind of jealousy. Those pictures are an illusion in one respect. They are nothing but paper. And here this young man is worshiping them and relating to them and not to his own father. That is a small picture of God's jealousy when his people turn to idols. God is jealous when they worship nothing instead of him. There is only one God, and therefore people who worship idols are really finding an excuse to express their moral depravity, which is killing them, and God hates that. God is jealous for His people's devotion because He knows that He alone is their Father and their joy and the source of their hope. And so Paul says, be loyal to God. Verse 14 Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. That's a negative way of saying be loyal to God. Run away from these idols. They're nothing. They're an illusion. They're drawing you away from the source of your joy and hope. They're a dead end street. Run away from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. You're sensible people. You're reasonable. Let me draw an illustration for you to demonstrate that it is necessary to flee from idolatry. Notice the illustration he chooses. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. In the Lord's table, they would take one loaf and break it off with their hands and eat it that way. And they would drink, it would appear many times, from one cup that they would pass from one person to another. What is Paul saying? Drawing from his other theological works, he is saying that we have died with Christ to sin and our identity and fellowship is bound up with him. What is the proof? We eat the Lord's Supper together as his people. And how does Paul refer to the cup that we drink in the Lord's Supper? Did you see that in verse 16? The cup of what? The cup of thanksgiving. He calls it the cup of thanksgiving. This cup that is a participation in the death of Jesus Christ for us is a cup of thanksgiving. Now, at the Jewish Passover celebrations, this cup of thanksgiving was the third formal cup of the meal. But for us, it is now the only cup. Jesus crucified and risen is the source of ultimate expression of thanksgiving for us, his people. So as we come together around this table and as we offer our public and private prayers of thanksgiving to God, may our hearts commune with Him. May they commune with Him and may we never forget as we come to this meal that it is a thanksgiving meal. 
It is an opportunity for us to express our thanks to the God of redemption. It is, as he says here, the cup of thanksgiving. And we could say very literally the bread of thanksgiving as well. May we commune with him then and thank him for who he is and for what he has done for us in Jesus. We should gather to this meal with a sense of introspection, with a sense of considering the gravity of what we are doing to consider our own sin before God and to be sure that we are right with Him. But we should also come to this meal with thanksgiving, always remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We should thank Him for salvation, for redemption, for reconciliation and forgiveness, for propitiation, for transformation, for sanctification, for glorification. The God of salvation has met with us and meets with us here because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for this, we should give Him thanks. We should thank Him that He is great, that He is good, and that He is to be praised forever and ever for this food. Because it is with this food that we commune with Him in the work of Jesus Christ. The thanksgiving offered by Jesus at his last Passover and the thanksgiving that we offer here today as we commune with the risen Christ and with one another rests on the glorious reality that God has intervened in our world. I think in a sense that is why the Jews are celebrating Passover in Jesus' day as he lifts up these elements of the meal as he gathers with his people there they are thanking God for his intervention he came to save and to rescue Israel thanks be to a God who intervenes in our life who comes in to rescue us why did Jesus give thanks he gave thanks as an old covenant Jew for God's intervention in Egypt, and he also gave thanks to God for the new covenant in his blood. This was a meal of great significance, and for it, Jesus gave thanks. Once again, God had intervened to send a sacrificial lamb to cover his people from the wrath of God, and Jesus gave thanks. And this is why thanksgiving is alive for us. It comes alive because we receive these elements as a participation in the body of Jesus Christ that freed us from God's wrath and conquered death forever. Praise God. We thank Him here. As the bread and the cup pass into our physical bodies, our eating and our drinking serve as symbolic demonstration of the union that we have with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. It's as close as we can get physically to demonstrate what is happening spiritually. As is true with baptism, when we go down into the water and are submerged under the water, and come up out of that water, it is as close as we can come physically to the concept of dying and rising with Christ. And here in the taking of these elements, we get as close as we can as we remember this ongoing celebration of salvation. By God's grace alone then, think of it, we who are alive to thanksgiving, by God's grace alone, we gather before God in this meal 
We commune with God in this meal and we directly say to Him, thank you, thank you for intervening in my life. We're not praying to one another. We're not talking simply to one another. We are looking God in the face and saying, thank you for your intervention. Thank you for your salvation and for your deliverance. How lost and hopeless the spirit of this age that finds no joy in the intervention of a Savior. I think of the words of William Ernest Hensley penned in 1885 in his poem Invictus. It captures the blind rage against the God of ultimate intervention. Listen to his words. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Whether or not they are as aware of their rebellion against God as was Hensley, every soul separated from God is dead to thanksgiving. This man in this poem is saying, I want no intervening God because I need no intervening God. I need no rescue. I need no salvation. There are few who would say it that harshly and that pointedly, but that is the world in which we live. We talk about thanksgiving. We don't know how to do it. We can't look God. We can't stand before God and express our thanks. But is it not a wonder and a joy for us as God's people that we gather and we give thanks to God that we are not the master of our fate and the captain of our soul? I rejoice to the core of my being that I can come to this table and say, Thank you that you are my captain and my master. We gather around this table in thanks to God that Jesus has conquered our souls and he has infused them with his glorious light. Thanks be to God who has intervened. And so we come to this table in the spirit of our master we come as He did, and we give thanks for the salvation of God as Jesus gave it. In truth, every time we come to this table, it is thanksgiving dinner. May we come in that spirit. And let us now come in the quiet of our hearts in prayer before the Lord. And I call those of you who are alive to thanksgiving to raise up your song of thanks in your soul as we come before him in prayer.
Then let's sing as a prayer, 800.